0: Welcome to the Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Welcome to the Pathless Path podcast. Today, I am talking to good friend Jovian Gotama. He is a fellow friend I have known here in Taipei for multiple years, and he comes from Indonesia but he spent most of his adult life in Taiwan and is also a citizen of the very American-influenced internet. We're going to talk about his journey of going from Indonesia studying tourism to selling steel in Kaohsiung, Taiwan, to now he is the CEO of a podcast app, my favorite podcast app, Castro. And how he navigated his career, how he thinks about life. I think you have a really interesting perspective. Excited to dive in today.
1: Super exciting um, to join the podcast, Paul, and the the Paul Miller experience. You're like the Joe Rogan of like people who hates (laughs) nine to five jobs, you know. And yeah, really nice to be here. And yeah, super excited.
0: That's a, uh, wow, that's a nice compliment. (laughs) I'll take it coal peeled.
1: Um, it's not red pilled anymore.
0: <laughs> what uh what were you like as a kid?
1: Um so when I was a kid is I it came from a quite complicated family background, I'll say. Um growing up, I was basically like treated like a prince, which is really interesting. And did you give you an um, a paint like a painting like how absurd it is? Like I am still fed spoon fed by like third grade because that's how um, how I say it, that's how spoiled I am and that's not necessarily because I want to because just like my mom was kind of like um, treat me that way and um, but but then growing up it's kind of like a messy and complicated um, family life and um yeah, in a way it, f- it kind of feel detached, but it kind of feel doesn't fit in with um who I am like this family so I kind of like grow up I kind of raised myself a bit and with the um the influence of friends around me trying to fit in um and yeah it's as a growing up, I would say I was quite independent, but there's always feel this like I don't belong here um feeling growing up. Say more about that. What What
0: do you mean you didn't quite fit in? Maybe maybe a little more about your family background. W- what was the, the culture your parents are coming from? W- what was their background?
1: Right. Um, my parents, they never actually had a nine-to-five job. So I would say they do kind of like scattered jobs here and there. Sometimes they start some entrepreneurial stuff and selling stuff. And but none of them really pan out to be like a long-term thing. And it's just like, um, I will say money is not a concern, so to speak, but it's mostly a concern for survival. There's no pressure of like, oh, you have to be a rich person or something like, there's this Asian, you know, kind of pressure. Oh, you have to take care of your family or your parents when you grow up, it's always there. But I would say it's come from non traditional um background, even in the um even in the Indonesian society, like you know uh you know broken home family and growing up um yeah, so it's it's just really all over the place, so to speak, that's the only way I can describe it, and of course, it's in the middle there's a lot of family drama kind of thing like. Like some jail time involved, like not me personally, but it's kind of like impacted my um childhood, like uh, growing up.
0: So very like not even working class, just sort of like having to make ends meet, doing yeah. whatever it takes, survival
1: mode. I would say lower middle working class. Yeah, the way I kind of describe it to is like um where we don't have internet growing up at home. And we don't have any personal computer or laptop because it's so expensive. But we also didn't need to worry about what to eat for tomorrow. So we still have that kind of like uh, buffer economically, so to speak.
0: Awesome. So this combination of like needing to make it, um, maybe a little scarcity mindset, but also you were like we were talking about this at lunch Mm -hmm. before this. you, You were like very praised. Like, yeah. you, you have a tremendous amount of self-confidence for yes. as an adult, as I yes. can tell now. Right. And um, it, it seems like you weren't criticized much in your childhood.
1: Yeah, so, when I grew up, like I mentioned before, I was super spoiled. Like, I cannot do no wrong most of the time, like, in my parents' eyes or my family's eyes.
0: Were you the only child? Or
1: I am the only child.
0: So, you, okay, yeah. yeah so,
1: it kind of explains everything, right? So... Yeah, so with growing up, it's always this positive uh, encouragement, or positive reinforcement, kind of thing. So I was never um, I heard from. Uh, I was we all talk about this online. Like I never get beaten by my family, which is I don't know if in the US it's probably like super, like super awful, like beating. But like on on our age, like in Asia, like yeah, beating your kids common. is just like staple food, right? Like, I've told you, like, I'm, I feel absurd because I'm the only kid not beaten in my class. Like, why why don't you beat me be kind of thing? Like, right? so, yeah. So, there's always this positive encouragement, positive reinforcement, which is, like, I think in hindsight, it kind of built my confidence. But on the other hand, it in the beginning, it also gave me, like, I have to build my own system to handle negative stuff or handle... Rejection and growing up because I wasn't equipped well uh, to do that. And so, yeah. And then in my adult life, whenever that kind of negative stuff happened, I didn't want to like to fall back to my family for um, either positive, positive reinforcements or oh, actually, I I let me rephrase that. So, as so I grew up, whenever I had like a negative stuff coming in or a like, criticism, I don't have the place to get that kind of positive reinforcement because I kind of, like, didn't want to get involved with my family more. So I had to build that from scratch, honestly. Yeah. So
0: take me to high school. You're working in—or um, you're going to this, like, very tourism-focused right. school. Right. Um, how do you end up in Taiwan?
1: So in high school, so that mindset was that— So. Uh, in Asia, it's like uh, junior high school and high school, like uh, three years of junior high school and then three years of high school. So whenever I when I graduated junior high school, there wasn't this idea of like going to college. There is nothing. College is not even in the roadmap. It's not even like I need to go to college. There's not. There's nothing um, that came up. And uh, on my family, there's no nobody went to college. So at that time, the idea was like. I wasn't even sure which high school was I uh, going to go to. And in Indonesia, or at least in Jakarta, like the best high school are usually private high schools. And they're super expensive. Like we absolutely couldn't afford it. My family couldn't afford it. And then one day there's this, um, I realized there's this option of vocational high school. It's called, I think the US, you guys call it crate schools, right? Yeah. But it's more tourism focused, basically like, after you graduate from that school, like um, you can go work in travel agencies or uh, airlines, um, and so no,
0: those are good jobs, right? Good jobs, like yeah, tourism, yeah. you can make really good money in Indonesia,
1: right? The basic salary is really it's really low. You get it from like taking being like a tour leader, like you take a tour group abroad. Uh, I'll tell you what, my so uh, I'm jumping around a bit here, but like after I graduated high school. I was waiting for a result of the time of uh, if I if I'm get coming to Taiwan or not, right so I got like a full-time job, and my f- basic full-time salary, this is like 40 hours per week job salary was like, I'm not kidding you, this is like 100 US dollars per month and yeah, even the same currency, even the currency bag is like 100, 150 US dollars that's a low paying job but uh, yeah, and with like high school graduate. Okay, so um, at that time, we didn't. I didn't have an idea. So that time, the idea was like, oh, I want to make money as quickly as possible, so I can get out and then kind of be independent from the family norm, something. And so I went to this um, tourism high school, and I think kind of there's some luck involved here because my high school had a scholarship program with a sister university in Taiwan, in Kaohsiung. I think so every year they chose a couple of um, students to apply. And then you get like full ride uh, from um, uh, dormitory fee, from tuition fee. For college. Uh, for college, yeah. So I was kind of lucky then. And Did a lot of people apply to that? No, actually, this is kind of, it's kind of weird because at that time, not everyone can apply. And it's a really small school, by the way. Yeah. When I said small, it's like on every year, we had like 60 or 70 students for one year.
0: And I imagine a lot of people just don't want to go to Taiwan.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> I feel like there's also some, um, so it's not offered to everyone, basically. Yeah. So they had master back then. So like kind of choose, hey, do you want to apply? If you want to apply, then uh, we'll tell you how to do it. So it's not necessarily open to everyone. But yes, but at that time I had that opportunity and um, I was like, all right, why not? Because I think the mindset was kind of like, I want to kind of break free from the, fr- I'm not necessarily from Indonesia, but like from the society. I'm curious about what, um, what is out there, right? Because since I was a kid, I was very much influenced by, I consume a lot of Westerns, like media stuff, like pop culture. Like what? Like uh, MTV. I love MTV. Like <laughs> TRL? Like, TRL. Not really. This is MTV. I guess you're
0: a little younger than me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was like this MTV, like MTV classics. And I'm learning. Um, and then. What stuff on MTV? Oh, it's usually MTV Crips. Oh, you know, that is course. really good. That's right. This was this um So one. what
0: what if, like you see cribs and you see all these mansions in America. Like, yes, whoa. this whoa
1: it is Aaron Carter's house. <laughs> Rest in peace, Aaron. Um so um yeah, no, it's really more like it's a mix of I had a TV in my room and yeah. then it's just a cable and then this I would just watch a lot of like mass media stuff like HBO with subtitles of course, Cartoon Network. It kinda happens there. And so um, watching
0: like the Sopranos.
1: So I didn't watch *The Sopranos*, but I watched *Sex and the City*. Like, I have no idea what was it about when I was a kid. Um, so, there's a lot of um, just so curi- kind of
0: curiosity about the world.
1: Yeah, this curiosity about the world, which is especially about the English language, especially the, the Western language, yeah. if that makes sense. So, I think overall, it's kind of like the. It's also laid back to late back to. Oh, I think tourism would be good for me because I'm always somewhat good at uh, English subjects like growing up and I'm not sure why and it's just I have this intrinsic curiosity about the language and also video games because in Indonesia they don't translate um, English video games to Indonesian so you kind of figure out okay what the hell is happening in this video game especially when you play like RPG games right and then yeah sometimes I just play video game and then look at the dictionary or what does this mean what does this mean so so yeah and then going back to high school and it's it's like a natural fit, like it's kind of built into that. And then I got the opportunity to, um, the scholarship to Taiwan and then I got accepted and I was like, yeah, let's roll. (laughs) It's kind of like,
0: (laughs) yeah. And so talk to me about coming to Taiwan. It's actually interesting what you were saying about Indonesia and Mm -hmm. English. I find Indonesia way easier to navigate than Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Um, Taiwan is sort of, like, closed off with the language. Like, stuff isn't translated to English as much. Um, how did you experience that at first?
1: Yeah, uh, when you say experience, experience Taiwan? Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. So, at first, I you, was, Did you speak Ch- Chinese? No, I, I, I s- know
0: you have some Chinese background, but you didn't speak I've Chinese. i spoke zero Chinese. Yeah.
1: Um, so, oh, it. Right, so, the scholarship also includes some uh, Chinese courses. Yeah. It's, like, intensive Chinese courses. So... Um, when I first came to Taiwan, I feel like your experience might be different because you're. Uh, I came at thirty three. Yeah. <laughs> you came at thirty three, and then like you're you're uh, Caucasian, or is that the proper term right now? I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I don't, I don't know, know
0: what the proper term, is. but yeah, it, well, that's yeah. a very that's a very like interesting thing in Taiwan, right? Your experience Absolutely. is totally different because people recognize you as Asian, and yes. Sometimes they think you're Taiwanese, yeah, and sometimes they assume you're Southeast Asian, right? Yes, yes. Um, versus how people treat a white person in Taiwan is, is different. How like, to
1: describe that? Let me ask you.
0: <laughs> at, okay. at, yeah, I, I think it's it's sort of tied to what you were saying with the Western culture. Like, I think especially among like Taiwanese elites, people put white American culture on a pedestal Mm. right and i didn't ask for that it's a bit weird sometimes um and in asia there's sort of like a hierarchy people look down on southeast asians here it makes me very uncomfortable um a lot of people's exposure to people from indonesia are through uh home health workers and aids right and how people treat those people are not necessarily the best right so yeah all that for con- how does that resonate with your own
1: understanding and um so in general there is this i i know there is this some kind of like condescending view i don't think it's that bad actually but there are some uh, to uh, non-Singapore, non-Singaporean, non-Malaysian, um, Southeast Asian, like, so in Asia, like I mentioned, like a lot of, um, for those who are not uh, familiar with how it works is that a lot of, uh, in Taiwan, there's a lot of foreign workers that becomes home helpers, but they're usually not Taiwanese. They're usually f- migrant workers from Indonesia or uh, Philippines and uh, Thailand. So they work here, work in the factory, doing the, like, um, I won't say dirty work. How, how would you say that? Like, um, uh, like factory work. Um, so there is this some kind of stereotype if you come from that country and you're probably more like a lower-class citizen. And again, I have to clarify, it's not everyone thinks, like, thinks about this this way, but maybe for, like, elder person. Um, but I'm actually quite lucky because... Um, I came to Taiwan in a college environment, right? So a lot of my uh, seniors are, which is, who are also from Indonesia are, help, are super helpful oh, and great. they already speak Chinese really well. So um, I, I was kind of, you know, uh, it, was, it, was, it was lucky. So when I come to Taiwan, the, I don't need to adapt a lot by myself. Um, so there are people who are assisting me and usually college kids at that time, my college friends, they're super, uh, super friendly. So, um, so yeah, but in usual, I, in general, probably speak of still Asian culture. So I don't have a lot of this, you know, um, culture shock, like for example, the food. Oh yeah. It's like Asian food. Like at least that's how I see it. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, but I think it's kind of, I kind of like everything is more less messy here and then it compared to a back home in indonesia so i kind of enjoyed it so not yeah. a lot of negative culture shock
0: yeah and so you, you've talked before about how you sort of liked the rules mm-hmm. right and this is why you would you didn't have a single person you knew growing up that had a nine-to-five job or an office job it's completely opposite of my experience um so you were sort of like craving some of that structure, some of the predictability. Um, talk to me about that and how you were thinking about like finding jobs and
1: thinking about your career. So right after high school, um, before the scholarship thing, and when I was in high school, the thinking was like, I'm, I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get a job. I'm, work, I'm going to work in a travel agency. I'm going to make my way up into um a general manager or something so in my family there's almost a lack of structure of like yeah just do whatever you want kind of thing and but and i kind of crave that like i need in a way i need people to tell me what to do i need a mentor i think the, the one way to think about it is like i need a mentor to like guide me like um every, like, my father uh, come and goes back then. Like, I didn't have, like, a father figure or even um, sometimes a mother figure to lead me through, uh, to ease me to uh, see how the world works. So I'm kind of craving some structure. Um, so I'm kind of craving some structure and that's why, I think, why Taiwan kind of suits you because there's some, like, rules. There's goals. a lot of structure, here. Lot of structure <laughs> here. And I think in Indonesia, there's there are structures but like people are more willing to break it and but yes in Taiwan there's a lot of structure and I feel like there's a lot of uh, constraints and which I can limit myself to in the positive ways so to speak so I kind of um how's it so I kind of like that so I kind of like and then but the interesting part is when I graduated from university And I realized these kind of structures can also be suffocating, right? Especially some stuff that like, oh, you know, this can be done faster this way, but why are we tied to this rules or what the boss says when I have a better idea? So kind of realized that. And then I think right now, whenever I'm looking for an opportunity or a job, when I was looking, it's really more like, okay, how do I? Um, so I kind of know how to identify an opportunity where there are some uh, rules and constraints, but also I can identify when the rules can be uh, can be challenged or meant yeah. like that. So I think it's really important. I think people don't realize that a lot of rules at, at their job can actually be discussed, and their bosses or managers are actually open to it.
0: So we're gonna get to that. I want to start with selling steel.
1: All right. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, so you're just hard, this hard, hard hitting question in the podcast. Uh, I wasn't ready for that.
0: <laughs> you, uh, so, but that's one of your first jobs out of school, right? That is my first, um,
1: yeah, technically second job uh, after university. Uh, sorry, first job. Sorry, first job out of university. Second job after yeah. high
0: school. Yeah. So you're selling steel in Chinese. Um, what What were you feeling at the time? You're You're on a call selling steel to somebody in china um what is going through your day-to-day thoughts in in that time
1: so on the selling part i actually still use english because i'm selling steel like internationally Ah, okay so to russia and to uh, indonesia and ukraine um so i use english called cold doing cold calls in English. So it's it's still scary, but it's kind of fine. Which is funny because I was more scared doing cold calls in Indonesia in my own uh, mother tongue compared to English.
0: But... Wait, I think that's an interesting point. It, I, I totally get this too. I think some things feel a lot heavier for me in English when I'm in the US because I know exactly how I'm supposed to feel. I know exactly what you're supposed to do. I know what responses mean. When you're in another language, you're almost like on... Like, when I'm communicating in Chinese, I'm not really sure what's going on sometimes. (laughs) But, like, I'm doing... I'm trying and, Uh, like, getting through it.
1: Yeah, I think that's correct. Because when I'm talking to people in English, I'm, like, super sensitive. What if I say something wrong? Yeah, you know
0: the correct way to communicate.
1: Exactly. Like, we don't talk like this, you know. (laughs) So, but in English, I think... I kind of like okay whatever, and the, the the thing I think about like the people I'm talking about is also non-native English speakers, yeah, so like Russians, so it's kind of like, But go back to your point. But using Chinese is actually we speak Chinese in the office, and when I need to speak like write an email to supplier, it's in Chinese. It's really challenging because it's kind of Google really Translate related. was
0: not as good. Though. Google
1: Translate is not as good, and <laughs> like how do you write business emails in Chinese? Like, and if I if I talk to myself like when I was like 10 years old, hey, you're going to write business emails in Chinese. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Can I swear in your podcast? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, it was kind of, I would say it is, um, like at that time, I, sp- I speak fluent Chinese. Yeah. So, it's not that hard to communicate like. But your
0: career. Stuff. Did you see yourself as a steel, a steel salesman at 50 years Absolutely old?
1: Absolutely not. So, that's a very, that's a very interesting one that I was going to talk to. So, I think I went there for two. Stayed there for two years. And there's this weird um, urge. At that time, I didn't know how to describe it. Like, it's almost like borderline depression kind of thing. It's just more like I do the same thing like over and over and over again. So for people who are not really familiar, basically like a steel trading company. So what you do is you find new clients abroad doing cold calls or uh, via emails or joining like a trade show. And then you build a relationship with them. And then every month or so, you ask, hey, do you need any commodities? Do you need any stuff? And then we report the price to you. There's absolutely almost zero room for uh, creativity there. And I was like, I kind of was kind of like stuck there, but I didn't really know where to go because I I didn't know what I'm good at at that time. Like, I didn't even know that tech or internet stuff is a thing. Like, I really do not know because I'm just... I was, at that time, I was like, oh, I can do sales. I know how to sell. And I speak English, and then my job will be like international sales. Um, so at that time, I was kind of lucky again. So I met a client who was selling steel in Indonesia, and he's, he's now one of my best friends. So he was running his dad's steel company. But on the side, he wants to do some startups, tech startups up with his friends. And I was like, uh, he's a really funny guy. And kind of like, so what is this tech startup? And he started like explaining to me about uh, what a startup is and why he's interested in that. I was like, huh, that's interesting. And I basically got super invested to that. And at this is at the same time around, you know, the, the Google um, Go competition, the, the one who DeepMind the, where oh, yeah, Google yeah. against the Korean Go player. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, oh technology is actually cool. So, yeah. that was kind of like my mindset. So, I would start I started looking for jobs for um startup in time. And At what this, year was this? This like 2016, okay. I think, 2016.
0: Yeah. And what, what were some of the first on-ramps in terms of learning more around tech and stuff?
1: That's a very good question, my friend. This is like trial by fire, honestly. So... At that time, I didn't have zero knowledge about tech or how startups work or anything, honestly, or like programming language and whatnot. I just uh, applied to this job, uh, and it's called the company called Code Mentor, which is basically like one-on-one platform for people who want to find uh, mentors for programming. And they're looking for a business business development person, and I was like, "All right, I don't have any like experience." I I only have two things that it's going my like. And actually, only one. Like, I, I, I know English. Like, I can't speak English. Like, at this at this um, job, it was kind of like a vague job. Kind of like they, they think they need a business development person, but they don't really, they're not really sure what to do with this person, if that makes sense. They just want to grow. Um, so I applied. So I applied and uh, talked to the CEO, uh, Waiting Liu. Um, and yeah, I got accepted, which also nerve something that you mentioned about like how I'm very like, I know a lot of more American things than Americans. I talked to my Xbox at that time. And I think the one thing that he mentioned to me that made me got a job is I mentioned to to him the fact that I browse Reddit a lot. You what? I browse, I browse uh, Reddit, Reddit. Reddit a lot. Yeah. And he thought that it's really hard to find this kind of people in Taiwan. Yeah. <laughs> so so I was like, all right, thank you Reddit.
0: Well, I think that that's such an interesting point because in Taiwan there's so much pressure on young people to speak English. Right. But they're going to these cram schools that are teaching like textbook English, like speak it correctly, right? And that actually probably doesn't matter that much. It especially in the U S and in many places, like your English can be like crappy, but if you know how to like navigate ideas and things like this, that can almost be more valuable. And it seems like that was one of your strengths you had developed pretty early on.
1: Yeah. And honestly, I'm not sure where that come from. I think there's, it's a lot of like, um, I think it's a lot of absorbing a lot of American pop culture stuff, honestly. This is what your guys are good at.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we put out a lot of stuff. Not all good. Movies, TV shows. um, Were there other strong influences for you? TV shows, movies, tech? Like, influencers you were following, podcasts?
1: No, at that time, I didn't... I think at that early time, I was like... um, I think when I was in college, like, on the first year in Taiwan... That's kind of like the first year I got like unlimited access to internet. Like I mentioned to you, I didn't have internet in my house until like high school. And I think I got it on my third year finally, but it's like super, super slow. Like you almost cannot load YouTube there.
0: I think this is something people totally underestimate is how early we are in terms of onboarding people onto the internet. Hmm. Right? Like, how many of your peers you grew up with now are, like, engaged in technology in that whole world?
1: Oh, I would say not a lot, actually. Yeah, yeah not a lot. But
0: I bet if you go to, like, 10-year-olds now, it's probably pretty yes. profound. Because in Indonesia now, you can get 4G everywhere. Yes, yes, that's exactly
1: it. Yeah, yeah. I, it's a I, pretty
0: dramatic transformation in the last 10 years.
1: I remember you told me about the story when you went to high school. And then yeah. you list out jobs like Uber driver and YouTuber. And then you ask the students, like, what are the similarities yeah. between all these jobs? And then basically you said that these jobs didn't exist like 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, they didn't exist when I graduated college. Yeah. College. College, yeah. It's crazy. Like, I don't think people really internalize this. Like, podcaster, podcast producer, right, as a job. 10 years ago, maybe there were five people on the planet doing that. 2013. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe five people on the planet doing that. Mm -hmm. There are people doing that all over the world now Mm -hmm. and like actually supporting their families. Right. So how do you navigate school in terms of like aiming at things, right? In the past, you could aim at certain behaviors, like put your head down and trust that you're going to be okay. That works if the labor market actually can deliver on that. Right. And I, I think this is, um, I'm really interested in your story because you're so good at being agile and adaptive. Mm. And we're coming from an era when it was like, you need to learn how to behave when to an era where it's almost like you need to learn how to think and evolve. Yeah. Right. And it's actually not the same. Like in the I think living in Taiwan on and off for the past five years has really given me a unique perspective. It's like Americans are in such a bubble. They think like full, high-paid full-time jobs are like a birthright. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, just like get a job. Like why wouldn't you get a job and like everything will be great. You Do become... you feel
1: like this is also true for people your age or is this more like a bigger yeah. thing?
0: most people I know have full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, we might seem like everyone's an entrepreneur in the U.S. from abroad, but it's not really the case. But in Taiwan, right, if you're just like put your head down, get an average job, that might be a terrible strategy, Hmm. right, because you're not in the U.S. economy, which is the top economy, extracting all the wealth from the global economy. Like you're in this middle income country where wages are kind of stagnant Mm -hmm. for 10, 15, 20 years now. Right. And it's um, if you stayed at that steel job, you'd probably make you wouldn't probably be making much more than you were making. What were you making at the time?
1: And the steel job? Yeah. I was like.
0: Hey there, it's Paul. I just wanted to take a second and thank you for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to support more, I'd love if you'd share this podcast episode or the podcast as a whole with one other friend. Sharing it like that is the easiest way you can help me grow the podcast, get better guests, and help me continue on this long game. Next, if you're enjoying this conversation, you'd probably enjoy my book. You can check out my book, The Pathless Path, which has now sold over 40,000 copies. You can check that out on pathlesspath.com. And finally, if you're looking to find the others on unconventional paths, I've started a community the pathless path community where you can find others on unconventional paths you can check that out on pathlesspath.com slash membership all those links you can find below and back to the episode
1: 30,000 ntd which was around like
0: it's like 900 us a month
1: 900 us yes yeah Nine hundred us a month so that, oh that's real low when i think about it yeah so but yes um I think in Taiwan, come back to you mentioned about like um learning how to think I don't know i I think as I grew up when I got more when I had the the time to consume more stuff from the internet, looking back, uh, sorry, at that time it feels kind of a bit like time wasting like why do you spend hours on YouTube just looking stuff and then or like spend hours on facebook um But I think at that time, it actually built my taste in terms of like what I found cool and what I want to work on or I want to be involved in. And as I'm joining tech and I realized, oh yeah, this is kind of, this is what interests me. And then the fact that the tech industry or even the industry, any jobs related to internet or the creative economy in general it gives you a lot of, um, uh, a lot of space to do creative stuff and just to do things that uh, you like is really liberating, um, at least for me at the time. And I think in Taiwan, I'm not really sure about like how to. Th- I think people like younger people or people our uh, age, right, like getting more and more. Um, they they understand more that, oh, um, and the internet is powerful, the tech industry is powerful. But how I see from the outset, they are still bound by this like top to bottom like structure. Of, even, even Of from, the
0: Taiwanese culture.
1: Of the Taiwanese culture. Um, yeah. Or even like YouTubers, for example. A lot of famous YouTubers are actually under a company. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is, I might be off on this, but as far as I know, they're like, um, like production agencies and whatnot, which is probably not that weird in the U.S., but yeah, there's still like top to bottom um, structure is still kind of exists here, that kind of flavor. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I think I, I saw some of this. Like I was talking to some creators Andrew was friends with and they were like doing a course, but like they were doing a deal with a platform and they were only going to get like 20 or 30% of the revenue. And I was like, this is crazy. Like why wouldn't they just use white label platform? And I think the those are becoming more powerful. But I think, um, yeah, we're we're very constrained by our scripts, right? And this is in the U.S. too. People are looking for permission, mm. right? And I think you've been really good at not waiting for permission. So talk to me about working at Code Mentor, and then like, what are some of the moves you made from there? So you went from Code Mentor, like, you've had. So many interesting jobs in the last seven years since starting at Code Mentor. Right. How did working in tech start changing your perspective on your life and how to take action in the world?
1: One thing I think one the the, the primary thing that I learned a lot from working in tech and the internet industry in general is that um not all decision matters. Like if you all decisions. Actually, most decisions are reversible. That's probably it. like before I joined like a corner or tech industry. I'm a super indecisive person. Like I don't know should I do this, should I do that. Well, I'm just like analysis paralyzes for uh, for a long time. you were just, looking for the correct decision. Yes, exactly. You're looking for the correct decision.
0: And tech is more just try stuff.
1: Yes. So the startup world is more like just try stuff and i was kind of like oh just test stuff and try stuff you know if it doesn't work it's fine it's just like a small it's a small thing so kind of changed my perspective a lot also in life and it's kind of seeping into my personal life too well this things okay what happened if I do this or what's the worst can happen so that's kind of changed my life uh, in general and the second thing is that the people in the world are more connected than I thought it was. Like, for example, when I was in Comentor, one of the um, one of the uh, first thing we do, I did like business development for the new platform at that time. Basically, like connecting freelance developers with clients, and I had like sales calls at two a.m. Taiwan time with American clients, and I think for some reason it just like oh these are the untouchable like company or people like cool startups in the bay area and whatnot but i'm in a call with it right now so i think in my mind it's like well every everyone is reachable everything is doable and we are more connected and in ways that i um very um i'm very surprised and i do like stuff like cold email campaigns like people reply to my cold emails like you're the ceo of like a series c round company like And I was like, oh, yeah, we are more, way more interconnected than I thought we are. And it's kind of like snap, like something snap clicked in my mind. So you
0: you felt more of like a globally connected world?
1: Yes. Yes, it was a globally connected world. And there is this, I had this idea about creating a podcast or newsletter about like tech workers in Asia. But doesn't feel right when i think about it because i feel like we are like connected you know even though you're in asia or something like that doesn't make sense yeah well i think
0: you see yourself as part of the global world
1: yeah that's how i see it right
0: whereas a lot of people see themselves as part of a country's labor economy i think in the u.s you tend to see yourself as part of the global world every company i worked for had a global team
1: um but, but for me it's really more like identity, more like yeah. self identity kind of thing. Like uh I know I, I love it, Taiwan.
0: I mean you just is it you just found more of a home on the internet? And um,
1: like I think I won't say found more of a home, but I'm I'm comfortable with it. Yeah. I'm comfortable with like reaching out to people on Twitter, reaching out to people on email or DM and I've kind of no like um I kind of know like how to get my way through it. Like, yeah, well, yeah you know, how to do do make life easier for that. How
0: do you make friends on the
1: internet? That's a really good question. Um, for you, you reach out to me. I th- I don't know. You reach out to my personal website, but I think in the internet, I think Twitter is actually still an underrated or X right now, whatever you call it. It's still an underrated platform to uh, make friends. Another thing we talk talked about is how we are both like a very optimistic person and yeah. uh, naturally optimistic person. I think it also seems to me in how I see people like internet, like it's uh always about, I think most people are good. Most people are nice. So if I reach out to them, they'd probably be nice to me. Yeah. That's yeah. Kind of yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> this is something I think too. It's yeah. like, yeah, people probably want to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> And then it sort of is like virtuous cycle because yeah. if you think that, then like people are like, "Oh, he seems pretty cool too," yeah. and like it actually leads to. Well, actual why wouldn't
1: you want to hang out with me? I'm a great person. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't. E- yeah, I don't even know if it's like an ego thing. For me, it's sort of like a naive optimism. Right. It's like, of course, everyone will get along, and like I generally like a wide range of people. I think you're very similar. You yeah. could probably have a conversation with anyone.
1: Yeah, I was like. I think making friends about making friends on the internet like um, it's really more about most people are nice I think of course there's some assholes along the way but if you filter it out like most people are good most people want to help you I think that's what I found I think um, I think sometimes uh, that's not
0: true I think sometimes in Taiwan like I've actually had some difficulty engaging in Taiwan where it's like offering like almost like English American internet world is like the assumption is you should help people. It's sort of this pro-social frame of like you should help people. Hmm. When I've tried to do that a couple times in Taiwan, proactively offered stuff, hey, I'll come and like connect with your group and mentor. They're like, I heard through back channels, somebody found Angie and they were like, we we felt bad like having him to have to come and do this.
1: Interesting.
0: Right? It's like this burden of like, oh, we might have to owe him some or we might not be good enough. And it's like there's all these hidden layers of friction I find in Taiwan, which is why like it's just easier to engage with people on the internet first. The internet is almost like a filter for like people that are willing to engage.
1: Well, I'm very curious about that friction that you mentioned i never experienced it personally myself but i probably just never had um you know offer something up but I, I i'm super curious about that though i wonder if that's common or is because mostly because you're a foreigner
0: it could be yeah i don't i don't know i think um yeah i mean one time Angie angie was like embracing some of these principles one time she reached out for a fitness a head of a fitness course thing, and there's like a fee. It's like a very famous person, and I think people are, he's used to people um, seeing him as an authority. Right. And she was like, Oh, could I volunteer doing this in exchange for this? And he sent her back like a nasty email. It's like, How, wow. how could you um, think? I, I don't know the frame it, but it was very like condescending. It was like, this is silly. This is not something we would do, that kind of thing. Um, and so all you all you need to do is experience that once, and then you're sort of just like, uh, eh, not worth yeah. engaging.
1: Exactly. I think that's that's a, that's the thing, right? You got to try it stuff. You got to try yeah. it stuff and see if it works or not. And um, I think there's also something I kind of learned in the tech industry too. You got to try it stuff. Or else you you're kind of just assuming how people will react about this stuff you're doing. Yeah. And if it's the worst they can do is like say no. So I would say. So yeah.
0: So how did you go from there to hosting a podcast about so, remote work?
1: Yeah, I think this also relates to what I mentioned about a lot of things are negotiable even if you have a full time job. So I was in CodeMentor at that time they had another product called ARC. until until like for four years at that time and I was kind of gotten that stuck like oh man I'm kind of stuck I feel like I need to do something different and at that time I was um discussing with my CEO with the CEO about like can I be part-time and can I do like part-time job here instead of like full-time because I want to spend the other half of my time to explore Um, different kinds of stuff and first first thing i know this is doable because uh, the company had done before with other team members and the second thing is that i know to get this approved i needed to propose something i need to propose a project i think that's people i think we've talked about this but i think people don't think about how to make it When you discuss something or you want to propose something, you have to make it easier for the other parties to say yes and make their lives easier. So I think at that time, my approach was, okay, I'm going to um, work part-time, like two, maximum three days a week. But, okay, so I cannot work very closely with a full-time team member. So what can I do which is kind of independent? And it was a podcast, and at that time I was also like super curious about podcast, like how do you create a podcast and what's the process, and I was fascinated by it, and I just okay, why do we do remote work podcasts, and at that time remote work was like kind of like uh, booming, and uh, this before this pre COVID, it was still pretty early, it's super early, <laughs> and we, and then people I was, in like,
0: twenty eighteen like, people were like. I talked yeah. with some clients, and they were like, "Yeah, we just don't do remote stuff. You would need to be in the office."
1: Yeah, yeah. They're... Still
0: have some of those people, but eventually, most of the boomers will retire.
1: Yeah, I man, they're like <laughs> Fred Flintstones. <laughs> yeah. anyway, so, so, so at that time I proposed, okay, let me do this uh, remote remote work podcast, and, uh, and I was okay, let's do that, and then I just started. Like I was the. Uh, I learned everything from scratch, basically how to produce podcasts and how to do interview research, and just reaching out to.
0: So whom. you're doing that for Code Mentor. Yeah. And so you did the the podcast and remote work. You were you proposed to them you would do that instead of your job, and then. Yep. What was your plan to do with the other work on the side?
1: This is very interesting. So, it's funny because the plan that I did instead was like I want to create something by myself, right? But then it led me to get another job. Yeah. So at that time, I was like part time and I was very, I wasn't super involved, but I, I found this, the indie hackers community. And at that time, I was like, oh, I want to be an indie hacker, but I, I can't code. And I, I don't really have an idea how to do that. Okay, let's take, take it step by step. The first thing that I want to do is like, okay, they have like this local meetups. And I think in London or Lisbon or something like that, and they they didn't have one in Taipei. Okay, and let me be your indie hackers ambassador, and let me just uh, do a meetup, and then, and then when I started the meetup, I met a couple of indie hackers, some Taiwanese, some foreigners, and one of the attendees was uh, Cameron, which uh, is the founder of the fitness app Strong, so, and then we met there, and then I joined them full time. So. So that's one of it and the other the other the other stuff I just got start freelancing but stuff. Th- this is
0: the crazy thing. This what? kind of stuff happens to you all the time. Yeah. What do you think contributes to like these sort of opportunities sort of emerging for you all the time? Are you paying attention better than other people? Are you more likable than other people?
1: I think it's just my looks, man. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know. I don't. I think it's just like trying out new stuff. It's yeah. like. Uh, Do you
0: think you're trying like ten times more stuff than
1: most no, other people? Absolutely not. Absolutely not ten times. I think three I'm, times. Two times, I, think. I really. It's really just like, it's. Uh, I think about like. I think it's the surface of luck, right? It's like the surface of luck. And just trying to do new stuff and then be there. And honestly, if I'm like objective say, I think I'm quite good at conversations. I'm yeah. quite good at like giving a first impression that I'm, I'm likable. And this might change in like two months or so. But like, I think it gives um, a good first impression. And um, I don't know. I think it's it's a, um, it's um, all of the education that from my child when I worked in tourism high school. And... Uh, Yeah, what do they teach you in tourism school? This is actually a lot of, um, it helps a lot. It's basically like, one of the reasons How to be
0: likable is like Cialdini influence skills? More
1: like how to handle customers, Ah. how to handle clients. So one of the biggest in Indonesia, I don't think it's a lot in Taiwan, probably in Asia. So there's a job called Tour Leader. So it's not necessarily a tour guide, but you bring like a tour group abroad, like Europe for 14 days or Japan for like, Eight days, so just like twenty or twenty-five people group. It's really so being a tour leader is a really uh, tricky job. It's kind of fun. It's good for if you're extrovert extroverted people. People have to like you, and you have to be able to adapt and deal with random shit all the time, and um, and you need to learn how to say no without it sounding like you're saying no. Kind of like so this kind of Um, There's a lot of emphasis on hospitality, how to be likable, how to win your customer's heart at that time. Well, not necessarily selling, but just trying to be um, polite and to be likable in a sense. I think this is something that... Any specific things they teach you? uh, That's a very good question. I think um, when... It's a very basic thing, but it's really more when you bring like um, a tour group. You need to anticipate what your uh, tour members might need afterward. Very small stuff. For example, when you go into uh, like a tourism spot, for example, you're in the Buckingham Palace or something like that. Yeah. First thing you do, go down to the bus, find out where the restrooms are. That's it. Find out where the restrooms are, and then so if you don't want to ask where the restroom, because that's an urgent thing, right? And then yeah. you know where is it, and then uh, real small stuff like table manners. Um, and then sometimes how to deal with random situation like this little one um, one test that basically the the question was okay you're bringing a tour in Berlin you're in Berlin right the Berlin airport and one of your customers uh, one of your team uh, tour members lo- lost their credit card what do you do like how ah. do you handle that kind of stuff
0: <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty interesting because it's it's like this should almost be the sort of like role playing simulation yeah. type stuff. This most tests. people learn, yeah. Like, because that's actual life skills.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for example, number one is like, if you go, let's say you bring a tour group to an airport, and the airport is on strike right now. What do you do? What's the next step? By step by step. You're in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Join the strike, and and uh, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, yeah,
0: so all right, so uh, w- you left your job. Were you concerned about money when you were thinking about renegotiating from five days a week down to two days I a week? I was actually. I actually
1: yeah. was. But this is how I'm this is how I think about it. So at that time, um I'm gonna be transparent about numbers here. So my salary was like sixty K uh N T D sixty. Like eighteen hundred US a month. Yeah, 1,800 US a month, right. And when but
0: I'm, in a country with universal health care and cheap food, right,
1: right. <laughs> but at that time, my, but I already have to like, I don't want to go down in lifestyle. Uh, I yeah, cannot yeah. go down in lifestyle. This is like <laughs> this is Chris Rock bit about it. Like people can't <laughs> go down in lifestyle. But so, but the other thing is like this. So, at that time, okay, it was around June, so it's like halfway through the year, and okay, if I. Get, if if I go part time. I think I remember salary? you explaining mm. it, right. this
0: to me at the time.
1: <laughs> I I think yeah, right. So okay, so I think or actually it's not part time. Like two thirds of the time, so some sixty. My salary goes like forty. Yeah, forty k
0: for three days a week. Yes, that's three three pretty good. Deal. It's pretty good. And you just then, got a raise. Right,
1: <laughs> that's true. <probably>, that's <laughs> probably true. And then I was like, okay. So I'm thinking like okay to make my own um, to, to have the same lifestyle or or income that I need to make the six months live in the year right. So I need to make like twenty k times six months, like hundred twenty k, uh total. Yeah, hundred twenty k NTD. That is just like four thousand USD four thousand US dollars. And I thought someone say, Can I can I, Jovian, make four thousand USD in six months? Yeah. And I was like, that doesn't sound too bad. I think I can do it.
0: Well and, and I love that because so many people discover this when they become self employed is yeah. you start thinking about money differently, right. right? And it's actually easier to make four thousand over six months if you're not working three days a week than if you were.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Right? That's exactly so right. this is where things start getting confusing because you shift from I get paid for this hour of work to I might work for weeks and then get paid in three months from now, mm. um, which is a hard shift when people become self-employed. But once you start thinking that way, you start thinking about money totally different.
1: Yeah, I think at that time, my, it's also a mix of, of like I was exposed to how people on the internet can make money. At yeah. that time, even so you're I are just didn't... like
0: browsing Twitter, and people are like, "I made a hundred thousand dollars."
1: Yeah, <laughs> holy shit, this got like twenty k in MRR. <laughs> holy shit, Peter levels make like five million US dollars, something like that. And it was kind of like, all right, it's kind of that kind of exposed, even though it's like indirect, and and then I was like, I kind of have some kind of confidence about my my skill level, and it's like I can make this. So that's kind of like give me a sense of comfort. And
0: so, you went from making about eighteen hundred dollars mm-hmm. a month, to then finding a job making five thousand a month. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. What What did that feel like? Did it feel like you tapped into some cheat code of the world?
1: Um, in a way, yes. But even before that, and um,
0: to put this in context, five grand a month in Taiwan is that's not too bad. Amazing. Yeah. Right. You you can basically have like a really nice apartment for a yeah. thousand a month.
1: Yeah. I think that's yeah. I think for me, it's it's a bit of a cheat code kind of thing, but it's really more like, oh, I can do this. And yeah. once you get that first thing, um, the first time, first opportunity, and uh, it feels like I can do anything. But actually, just before that, I, before I found that full time job, so that five thousand dollars to put into context is with my pre- previous job, um, full time job. But before that full time, before that full time job, I had like freelance, uh, freelancing opportunities, and one of them was to be a podcast editor with I've told you this with uh, Louis Grenier from Everyone Hates Everyone Marketers and his friend Andrew Michael from Turnout FM um it's interesting because uh he's super nice because um i listened to his podcast like even way before i like how he thinks about marketing and stuff and not being shady not, not yeah. so much marketing bullshit and i just actually just asked him opinions about marketing and stuff and then he sent me like a long loom video about my questions and super nice but i think that put me on his radar in a way and after like literally, I think a month after I proposed like the uh, the part time thing, he reached out to me. Hey, do you want to work as like podcast editor for me? Like we need someone to do this. I was like, oh right, that's interesting. And so I did that. My am pod- editing podcasts and creating like a uh, blog content. And uh, so yeah, so that's a, a kind of good paying job. Adding uh, added to my. Um, um part time salary at that time. So yes. And then goes from there, I find a full time job in Strong and yeah. It's it's really more about once you got this opportunity twice. Sorry, once or twice, it's just like it's unlocking cheat code. Oh, I can do this. Yeah. It's just opens like a new whole opportunities.
0: And I think one interesting thing is you're tapping into the American like tech ecosystem
1: the hive mind
0: yeah. right and like actually like all that time like quote unquote wasted mm-hmm. like watching silly TV shows mm-hmm. was probably one of the most valuable things you I will did. say
1: yes I will say yes right
0: you, yeah. you're like my most American friend in Taiwan <laughs> <laughs> like you did drop- you just
1: insult me <laughs>
0: No God you damn you just drop some of the like deepest references you're <laughs> like have you heard about this cafe and like uh, hey,
1: about this John Mullaney bits
0: <laughs> yeah um so but it it's very interesting because that is sort of what you need to like learning perfect by the book grammar english is fine but actually like watching comedy and listening to podcasts is probably going to help you get a job more
1: yeah and honestly And how many
0: days have you spent in the US? Thirty days. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's like I think thirty days. So I went to the US in twenty seventeen for like business trip. Um, and mostly stayed in San Francisco in the Bay Area and Sunnyvale to be exact. And went to LA to meet like high school friends and I honestly I like the US at at least at that part. I haven't been to other parts yet, but yes. So, yeah, a lot of things I learned about the U.S. are mostly from, like, honestly, like, pop culture. I think even Americans don't really realize how big of an influence they have around the world just from the the entertainment stuff that they churn out, like, every day or, like, even before the influencer stuff. And I think I want to add, like, There's another side of this. I think there are a lot of people smarter than me that can communicate in English better than me, but they don't know that there are opportunities out there um, they can do remotely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I think you just start working for people too, right? right? And you just keep helping people. And I think it's like learning that behaviors. I'm guessing like your childhood experience was super valuable because like growing up my experience was you needed to get accepted by a company to do work right your experience was you just do whatever you need to do (laughs) yeah
1: i think that um
0: and like this is the crazy thing we look at like people as like lower middle class or like poor people it's like they're actually entrepreneurs Yes. Right. the The person selling food at a food stand or in a market, they're literally entrepreneurs. Yes. We just have all these class markers caught up in these things.
1: Yeah, I think my childhood experience of being like a bit, um, like like off the beaten path, actually, and from that childhood experience, and when I as I grew up, I seek structure and constraints. But as of now, I feel like I calibrated it quite well like I know even though I know that I'm under a certain kind of structure or limitations I think there are some ways that can us uh, circumvent that or negotiate it with the right person like the street smarts kind of thing I learned that so, so yeah, kind of lucky. <laughs> this is
0: a great <laughs> transition to um you go from selling steel mm-hmm. to sales for Code Mentor mm-hmm. to running a podcast mm-hmm. to running marketing for mm-hmm. a strength training app, mm-hmm. and then you become CEO of a podcast app. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did did you expect you'd be you'd have the title CEO at um, this age? Right.
1: So um, so. F- <laughs> I don't know how to answer it. I think it's weird. I mean, honestly, like CEO, it's just really just like, you're, you're, I think
0: you're downplaying it. Like, I I, I understand it's a small team and yeah. it's not a major up, but you just end up in, you keep, and you, you sort of just keep like wandering about trying stuff and just keep ending up like succeeding more I'm and like
1: more. I'm like the force gum for small startups. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like this. Yeah. I think I think
0: Forrest Gump is great American <laughs> reference.
1: Shout out Tom Hanks. Um to no no Yeah,
0: how like just how does that happen? So tell me actually how it happened okay. and um so talk to me about how that experience is Earlier
1: going. this year, this is twenty twenty three for people listening in like twenty sixty seven. Um
0: shout out from the past. Shout out to We don't have full AI yet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> shout out to president um joe rogan um um so i was transitioning to i was looking at good, some new opportunities like earlier this year right so i i'm i had like a, um i had like some freelance gigs at the time running with Insight.com. insight are you familiar with it
0: yeah yeah inside. insight is the like tracking app with like no, 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 no! W-
1: Inside this, the um, like a news forum, uh, website owned by Jason Calacanis.
0: Okay. No. Okay. I anyway, don't... so
1: I had like a writing gig, like writing newsletters, like two newsletters a week. Imagine that.
0: You were doing that. as another side experiment. Side,
1: another, another freelance gig, like. Okay, so time.
0: you've you've done a bunch of freelance stuff. You right. did some stuff for Zapier. You've right. written humor. Um, you, you're basically experimenting nonstop yeah. throughout this whole yeah. period.
1: Yeah. So at that time, I was just looking at different kind of uh, opportunities. Like at that time, I was, I'm not sure what I want, but I'm pretty sure what I don't want. So I know what I don't want in a job. And you wrote about this in your book, right? It's really important for you to have like, to know what, understand what life you don't want. Anyway, so one of them is I bumped into uh, Tiny's uh, website. Uh, For those who don't know, Tiny.com is a holding company that owns the Castro podcast app along with uh, other companies like AeroPress and Letterboxd actually they, they, they acquired own, Letterboxd
0: they own AeroPress?
1: yeah nice and and for designers out there at Gribble so I I'm, I'm I follow the CEOs like Andrew Wilkinson's Twitter for a long time now I'm very interested about how they think about uh, managing small companies like it's not like 10x growth it's just like
0: they have radical approach. Yeah. Just like profitable companies. Yes. Oh, so man. radical.
1: Making money, damn. <laughs> this is like some anarchy is going on here. Like, look at this young kids want to make money.
0: No, I always say, like, I have I am so successful. I've made billions more than Uber. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it.
0: Of course, my income is a rounding error, but billions
1: <laughs> more. Hey, it's like morale victory for your yeah. wallet. Think about it. Like um that. Anyway, so So, Tiny
0: is this holding company by Andrew Wilkinson. mm -hmm. It owns a collection of profitable um, ventures. One of them is Castro. Um, From what you've told me, it was kind of just running in the background, had a developer team, and uh, you ended up reaching out to work on it.
1: Right. So this is another example that I think uh, might be interesting, an interesting story is like in Tiny's website, there's this form where if you want to work to on one of the, if you want to work for one of the portfolio companies, uh, you can fill out that form, right? And the last question, like where are you from, what are your interests, and which one of the company, uh, which one of the companies would you like to work at? And um, so I was filling it out. I was in Japan, like having like a, a career break at that time. And I filled it out the submit button doesn't work. I think it's like a webflow page, something like the supplement one doesn't work. And so what I did was like, I emailed Andrew <laughs> with my resume, with the subject line, um, broken link on Tiny's <laughs> website. And then I told him, Hey Andrew, um, I was I, um, I was using Tiny's because I always want to um, submit my resume for any of t- Tiny company, but I realized that it, the link doesn't work. Just FYI. And by the way, this is my resume. This is my resume attached. And I think a couple, a week later, I think he replied, hey, do you want to work for Castro? I was like, oh, sure. Did you
0: say you want to work for Castro? No,
1: no. But like, that's one. I think the two companies that I'm super interested in working in uh, in Tiny's like portfolio is like, the first one is like Castro and Supercast. And I'm not saying this because I am not working in Castro. It's actually the one, the two that I had in my mind. SuperCast is uh I think one of the sister company that work with podcast podcasts like Andrew yeah. Huberman, Peter Atia. And it generally was the one that I was um um I'm thinking about when I was applying. So yeah, and I was like, Oh sure, and then let me learn more about what is a so. Castro user.
0: Yes. For years. Shout for out, years.
1: Yeah. So will you link Castro on this podcast? Yeah absolutely you're right <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway so i at that time i kind of learned okay that's interesting and i learned more about castro about what's happening right now and and i used castro like years ago honestly but i didn't use it recently and i real and then i um i understand how it worked out different from other podcast app and i was like Sure, but then I realized it's like CEO position. I was like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Like CEO or general manager position, like wait, wait. At that time my first thinking was it's not the positive way of thinking about it, well, it kind of fits my experience. When yeah. I say it's not like the CEO thing fits my experience, but I'm very much I'm very much a generalist. Yeah. I I, I don't identify my I did marketing before, but it's weird for me to identify myself as a marketer.
0: Yeah, you did a lot of stuff for Strong yeah. and other
1: companies. So, and then I was like, this kind of fits my interest and experience. Like, I did a bit of design. I did a bit of, um, like, marketing and sales and stuff. This kind of fits my um, my skill set. I was like, okay, let's try it. We try it out for a trial period, a couple of months, and it works well. And yes, I think right now, as of now, I'm still running it. I don't know when will the podcast be launched. Like. So yeah, it's a really been an interesting experience so far because it's a great product. Let's say like the previous founders, like it's a really, really, really good product. And it's an opinionated, pro- opinionated product. Yeah, which is I like it. Super, like yeah. the
0: queuing function is a killer feature yeah. for me. But I realize that may not be ideal for everyone.
1: Right, yeah. So I think for us, it's really more like just trying to figure out what's next and uh, update new features. But yes, that's how I'm in this position right now. (laughs) So um, I think a lot of these are this accumulation of pursuing things that I'm curious in, to be honest. Like, I'm not sure, like, I didn't know, I'm not sure why Andrew asked me, like, do you want to work for Castro? Like, what's in my resume? But in my resume, I mentioned that I had an iOS app experience with Strong, like the previous strength training app that I uh, I was working at, and I had a podcasting experience. So, I I know, it's like a mash between those two.
0: Yeah, this is the same thing about, like, aiming at a career. Right. Like, you huh. couldn't have aimed at this when you graduated yeah, that's, college that's
1: exactly it's so I'm very skeptical about the word career and successful and uh right now, so uh, okay when you say career when you hear the word career what do you feel like it's um it's um how to say it like what do you think about it like,
0: I've thought a lot about this okay
1: yes, <laughs> <laughs> the careerless path by paul Millard
0: uh I think about the definition as a first person story in your head about how you relate to work over time. Right. And when I think about it, I think about the past. I think about committing to a company and building a career, a series of narrative driven steps like oh i do this and then i do this and i accumulate this experience like my first job was at ge Mm
1: -hmm.
0: when senior people would come in they'd be like look young people this is what you need to do to succeed at ge you need to work in these functions and these functions and like the most important thing i i did was like i took this hard role I knew this role would suck and it'd be hard and be long hours, but that's actually what you need to do to succeed at this company. So it's sort of like this whole story world people invent around like what you're supposed to do, right? And I think what's happened in the modern world is people are no longer with one company, right? So people are trying to pair career with jumping between companies, which puts the entire burden on the individual, to craft this story and it's always fragmented right and I think like for me the solution has just been to like actually disconnect from job to job to job to actually just trying a bunch of stuff so now like a lot of the stuff I do like doesn't might not make sense over a year but like the principles are I just want to be interested in the things and like stay energized and yeah, I don't, which is a long answer, long way of saying I don't think about a career at all anymore. I don't think I have a career.
1: Yeah, and in a way, your book is kind of like the culmination of all your previous experience, right? That's like one milestone sense of...
0: Yeah, your... it's it's also like a deprogramming guide for people that are in the career mindset.
1: Huh.
0: Um, yeah. yeah. And we crave this like consistent story, right? But... And it can be hard, right? Now you have the CEO title; it could be a trap to think like now you can only do that next, right?
1: Yeah, I think how I think about it. Even though I have the CEO title, but I'm really I I mostly think about it is I don't think about it in the frame of a career. As in, okay, if I'm CEO now, then I can be a CEO of a bigger company later on. I don't think about it like that. It's just really more about, okay, I'm in this position right now. What can I learn? And what can I create or build with uh, the other people in the team which can help me pursue future uh, opportunities that I'm curious about? Does it yeah. make sense? So Just it's kinda keep like, your curiosity yeah, alive. Yeah, just keep your curiosity time. alive. I, I think I am I want to design this kind of thing and this kind of feature. And I've been... It can branch to something, but I don't think about it as um as um as a path to a, to a bigger cur- title, business title, if that makes sense. I probably think about it as a way how can ex I can expand my curiosity and try new stuff, but not necessarily how do I get to like a bigger position yeah. and make more money. So it's not necessarily a thing uh like like that
0: that's awesome and I think the trap of like aiming at success or like putting yourself in that career mindset is you see things as like I'm doing X for Y later yes right, and you're basically just saying I want to enjoy the X and I want to keep enjoying Mm -hmm. the X
1: yeah because I think it's also an experience from the past like I knew for a fact when if I just pursue something without a goal but like fulfilling my curiosity it will lead to something um, yeah in the end like I'm I think I'm kinda of lucky because that that thing became a fact very early for me. Well
0: it's like this optimistic mindset sort of feeds upon itself. When good things happen you expect good things to happen, therefore you engage yeah. with the world as if good things will happen. Yeah, absolutely. And then good things keep happening.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think this is really underrated trait, honestly. I think there's a lot of miserable bastards <laughs> on the internet like <laughs> no, 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 Like I, I feel like in in Twitter, uh, especially like in people in our circle, I think there's a lot of optimistic people that is yeah. that do a That's lot of thinking. Yeah. yeah, do they do a lot of thinking about um, their life and like creating or building or even in a way some career path. But it's not they just like autopilot through their career, but yeah. they really think about how to build the best and create a happy life. So, yeah, I think that's interesting. I think a lot of people don't really understand, I'll say especially people in Indonesia or Taiwan, they don't really realize that there's an option to be happy without keep pursuing career. I feel like even though you mentioned in America, just the script that you have to have a job, but at least from my interaction on Twitter, it already has this, or even Zoomers maybe, there's this conscience that, oh, I don't need to have, like, a fantastic career to be happy. I can just pursue my curiosity and I can make money.
0: Yeah. I think this That's this a awareness. very Twitter bubble.
1: Yeah. Um, really?
0: Yeah, I think there still is this pervasive um, career mindset in the U.S. I think one challenge in the U.S. is expectations are so extremely high. Um, people want the 3,000 square foot dream home. Right. They want the nice cars. They want to put their kids in fancy schools. So like there's been a ratchet of like what people expect. Um and people see other people doing that on social media and always feel like they're behind. Whereas like when I'm in Taiwan, like I don't feel that pressure as much. I think part of it is like yeah, everyone lives in the same cities and has access to the same food, which is like reasonable priced.
1: I think that's phenomenon is also um I've I've told this I've told you about this, but I've also found a similar phenomenon in Jakarta in, in yeah. Asia. People just get influenced by uh, the social media of oh they have this like three story houses. I have to like four story houses, this kind of thing. And I think it's because Jakarta is like growing up, growing really fast right now, developing really fast. So it's kind of like a byproduct of that, like um, keeping up with the Joneses, yeah, kind of thing. And and I agree with you. In Taiwan, there's less of that kind of pressure. I mean, there's probably there probably is, but I can just be happy having a like okay house and then, um, just spend my time in coffee shops and then do <laughs> yeah. work. Like, if you've never been to Taipei, come here. There's like tons of coffee shops here. So yeah, great. Like,
0: do you think like you must get exposed to like a lot of Americans complaining about? country in this situation as well online like what what is your reaction when you see that kind of stuff
1: you shall see you shall see my list of like beautiful Twitter words <laughs> like <laughs> it's it, does it shock
0: you though like I think um, from traveling and living in other countries I think sometimes people don't understand the access to opportunities they have in the US
1: you mean for Americans yeah oh that's interesting I think a bit yes I think a bit like some part of me I'm not trying to trivialize some like social issue stuff, but some part of me kind of like see some Americans complaining about some very trivial bullshit like for me like for me it's super trivial it's like why what are you doing you know that this thing is like normal everywhere around the world <laughs> and not your and not your country and uh, you, you know what I mean so
0: like healthcare
1: th- yeah healthcare is a bit like I don't know, just up I can't think about like 's just like how is it culture war stuff oh yeah i I mean, I'm not gonna touch that in a ten foot pole, but like I think there's part of this like if that's your just, again, not all of them there are some social issues that I feel like it's really like some unique in the u s and I feel like there's probably you guys have to deal with this shit kind of stuff, but there's of that are really like trivia, super trivial, um, and I'm like. Yeah, why why are you guys fighting about this right now, kind of thing? So and you don't know you're having it, really you're having it really good up there. And um, so it's like
0: once you've met all your basic needs, you you yeah. need to create drama in your yeah. life.
1: <laughs> That's true. And again, I'm not saying for people who really struggles, I'm not saying that your your problems is not uh, meaningful. But I think in the grand scheme of things, there are times where. Uh, the people just don't. They take a lot of stuff for granted. I'll say that. Yeah.
0: In the US. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I mean I've experienced this. You've experienced this. Just living in other countries keeps resetting your expectations, and re- it really has humbled me. In terms of like, a lot of your opportunities are so dependent on like where you're born, or where uh, yeah. you are, or what you have access to, and. I think you have a really good perspective on this. Like growing up in Indonesia, people do not have great access to a global labor market or even things like travel. Right. Because there are visa restrictions. You can't just travel to the U.S., for example. Yeah. You need a visa. Yeah. Um, you know how and, hard
1: it is to get a visa in the <laughs> yeah. U.S. visa? Dang, dang.
0: I don't think people know. Yeah, um, and despite that, you've sort of built this life, engaging with the global world and tapping into the internet, and like taking such an optimistic mindset. I just think it's really inspiring.
1: Yeah, I think, I think what I think about is like. I know a lot of Taiwanese and Indonesians. They're way smarter than me and can communicate better than me. But I I. I don't think they're just not aware. There's this opening that if you want to do it, you can collaborate with people around the world creating stuff you like. And not necessarily even in the context of creator economy, but really just finding a job that you like, you know. And there's a lot of great remote companies like Zapier, Buffer, and whatnot. So yeah, I think we're very lucky Like we live in the an in era where like the internet it started to growing and then we kind of know our ways around that because if I had to do this like depends on my passport it's just it's not possible so when I said like the Indonesian passport is like the travel equivalent of like a unicycle you technically can go anywhere with it but like goddamn isn't it hard like <laughs> Jesus <laughs> it's hard like um, but yeah um uh, that's something I'm kind of want to um, tell people. It's possible that your opportunities are actually way more um, are way more uh, diverse than just in the small island of Taiwan or the the island of Indonesia. Um, and yeah, I think not a lot of people understand that, um, and it's probably a way a mix of like they don't know how to reach out. Or they speak English, but they don't really understand how to communicate in, uh, in a non-Taiwanese or an Indonesian, Indonesian way, I guess. I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful advice. Mm-hmm. Um, I love what you're up to. How can people support you, reach out, connect? Uh, sign up for the Castro Pro subscription um, to, to keep Jovian working on Castro. Um, how else can people support you or reach out?
1: Right. So, if you want to follow me um, personally, you can reach out to me or follow me on Twitter. It's V N with three V's. It's J O V V V I N. It's a random thing. I don't know. I didn't know why I chose that name. Uh, yeah. J-O-V-V-I-N. Uh Follow me there or just uh, send me a DM or. Or hate mail, if you want it. <laughs> and if you want to try out Castro, if you want to try Castro, go to the App Store and search for Castro or Castro Podcast Player. It's if you listen to tons of podcasts it's like what like Paul do, and Castro is the best for you because you don't you just need to su- subscribe and forget it. Only see your app if there's new episodes, and yeah, that's it. So yeah.
0: awesome! Thanks for coming on the Pathless Path.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Mr. Willard. So, yeah.
0: Awesome. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book. Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening.